The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, a deadly security uh, from the angel to the church at Sardis. For a little background on our text, uh, the year was 547 BC when King Croesus ruled over the province of Lydia in modern-day Turkey. Uh, King Croesus had been concerned with the advance of the Persian Empire under the reign of a very ambitious leader, Cyrus the Great. Croesus and his forces first met Cyrus on the field at Cappadocia and were unsuccessful, were driven back. He next fought uh, with Cyrus at the Battle of Thimbra and was defeated. And so King Croesus then retreated into his walled, fortified capital city of Sardis. Sardis had been thought to be impregnable. Built on a spur at the foot of Mount Timolus, Sardis was 1,500 feet above the surrounding plain of Hermas, surrounded by vertical cliffs and then fortified with walls. There were ancient prophecies that Sardis would never be taken, that Sardis, the city of Sardis, would never be overcome. And under the circumstances behind their walls and atop their cliffs, the Sardisians felt extremely secure within their fortress, uh, quite certain that not even the great Persian army under Cyrus the Great would ever actually enter the city. The Persians who had besieged the city, stood at the base of those cliffs for two weeks bewildered, uh, not imagining how they could make it into the city from where they were, imagining that they would have to simply wait out the siege, wait out the city, starve out the inhabitants in a prolonged siege. That until, as the account goes, a Persian soldier watched a Sardisian soldier accidentally drop his helmet over the wall above them from the city. That Persian soldier then watched as the Sardisian soldier climbed down the wall, climbed down the cliff to retrieve it, and as he watched, he discovered the way into the city. So that night, that very night, the Persians scaled the wall and fell upon the unsuspecting and secure Sardisians. Asleep in their beds, a false sense of security failing at the watch, and their enemy fell upon them like a thief in the night. The problem faced by Sardis was not one of severe persecution from outside of the church, like the synagogue of Satan in Smyrna. It wasn't an infiltrating enemy wreaking havoc on the church from within, like the churches at Pergamos or at Thyatira. The problem at Sardis has a much deeper source. The problems in Sardis originate within the hearts of the Sardisian professing Christians themselves. And we begin in understanding this with the initial address of the Lord to the church in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, to that angelic messenger assigned with the task of taking this message to Sardis, emphasizing this angelic messenger emphasizing the heavenly origin, and not only the heavenly origin, but the heavenly authority of the letter, he sends this message to the church at Sardis. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The Lord Jesus Christ here introduces himself in terms reminiscent of chapter 1. We remember that description from chapter 1, right? He is the one, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has given the Spirit without measure. That's John chapter 3, verse 34. The one in whom and through whom the Spirit works without limitation. And so the seven spirits of God here refers to the wholeness of the Spirit, the completeness of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, the perfection of the Spirit's work in and through him. He is the one who has the seven spirits of God. Do you see? Seven being a symbolic number referring to complete perfection or complete fullness. Jesus Christ has the seven spirits. 
The seven stars, I believe, are reference to the entirety of the angelos or the messengers from the churches to a lost world. Those who turn many to righteousness through the preaching of the gospel. They shine like stars forever and ever, Daniel said. Those who shine as lights in the firmament, lights in a dark place. Now, both of these statements, he is the one who has the seven spirits of God. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. Reference is a reference to the Lord's authority over his body, the church. He is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. But he's also the one through whom the Spirit proceeds to supply the church with strength, to supply the church with life, with breath, and everything that the church needs to perform her mission in this dark world. He is the one who sends forth his Spirit to make the lights shine, so to speak, to make the stars shine in the firmament. And as we begin this letter, in fact, every time we approach God's word together, as we read God's word to us, we are to see him enthroned in glory, given to be head over all things to the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is exalted in glory, right? He is the one who has the seven spirits of God. He holds the seven stars. He is the one who walks amongst the lampstands. The Lord of the church then begins his address to the church at Sardis, with these very sobering words. I know your works, that you have a name that you were alive, but you are dead. You imagine. Right? He is the one from whom the sevenfold Spirit of God proceeds to supply the churches, and the church at Sardis is in desperate need of the Spirit's work among them. Uh, the, the Spirit of God is the one who gives life. Do you see? And they are dead. They need the Spirit's work. It would appear as though that the church at Sardis has succumbed to a deadly moralism, a deadly moralism, which has in fact killed the church. There are those among them weakened, ready to die, verse 2. There are a few names left among them who are alive, verse 4, who have not defiled their garments, but the church as a whole has been marked, and marked now by the Lord, by a plague of death, a plague of death. Now, we can make a connection then between the church at Sardis and their spiritual condition to the Sardis of old and the reputation that the city itself has. Sardis was surrounded by enemies, surrounded by her enemies. A war is raging. The Persians are at the gates, so to speak. There are those who seek her life. She can't trust a moment in her walls she can't trust a moment in her physical strength. She can't trust a moment in her position atop the cliff. Something as simple as a soldier dropping his helmet and all is lost, right? And all those prophecies of how Sardis would never be, be taken uh, look foolish in retrospect, don't they? Something as simple as a soldier dropping his helmet. What does she need? She needs divine strength. God's strength, not man's strength. She needs divine help. She needs divine protection. In a similar sense, you can see a war is raging on the plains of Babylon. It's a war against the dragon. It's against the beasts and the harlot. The church is surrounded, and Sardis is asleep at the watch. Sardis, confident in her own strength, confident in her own security, as though they were dead and Sardis, in the midst of a war that is raging, is completely at peace. But it's the peace of a cemetery, right? From where does the Lord draw his assessment? Sardis has a reputation, a name, a reputation of being alive, but they are dead. Where does the Lord get his assessment from? He says, I know your works. I know your works. From all outward appearance... You have a name, you have a reputation that you are alive, but I am the one, the Lord says, who searches the heart, right? The Lord is the one who searches the heart. He says, I know your works. Inside and out, I know your works, and you are dead. Just like the city itself had lived with an old reputation, a sense of false security, believing their lives to be guaranteed, professing Christians in Sardis are living off of an external reputation, they're living off of an idea, living off of their own strength, a reputation that they're alive, when in fact they are dead. They believe life to be a foregone conclusion. 
when in fact they are spiritually dead. Well, how do you know the difference? How do you know the difference between life and death, especially when assessing uh, life, the life of death of a church like this? Death and life are distinguished by the presence and working of the Spirit of God. Works that are not done in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, works that are not done through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are dead works. We're familiar from that, with that from James, aren't we? Dead works. Romans chapter 14, verse 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. Right? Consider by way of contrast with me, good works are those works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those are good works, right? Good works are those works commanded or commended by the Lord in his word. Good works are done through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're done by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're done in the power and in the provision and in the supply of the Spirit. Good works are done in dependence upon him. Good works are done in reliance upon him. They terminate on his glory and not upon our own. They terminate upon him. Works that are good terminate upon the Lord. They are done in gratitude rather than being done in self-righteousness. Good works are works that are acts of worship or acts of praise. There are works that are done that may appear good to us. They may even receive the applause or esteem of others, the applause or esteem of men. And we're content often with those works because of what they say about us but we shouldn't be content with those works because they don't say anything about him. (laughs) More about us than about him. There is a way which seems good to men. The end of that way is death. Unless our works are sanctified, as it were, in the blood of the Lamb, set apart to the Lord Jesus Christ, those works are defiled by sin. Those works are vain, useless, worthless. Those works are dead, do you see? We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64. So you can have a professional musician, professional musician, play, play all your hymns of praise. You yourself could sing them like Pavarotti. You could bring men to tears with the emotion of the music, and that would be a dead work unless it flows from a heart devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Do you see? The deadly problem at the root of moralism or a religious formalism is the corrupt notion that we can be good without him. And there is nothing that is good without him. Right? Surround man's work. Surround man's worship with all the pomp that you want to. Surround man's so-called worship with all the ceremony that you want build cathedrals, hang bells in the tower, dress up in a pointy hat, burn incense, recite prayers. But unless our work glories in the crucified, risen, and exalted Christ, it is worthless. It's worthless. For apart from him, we can do nothing. What he finds acceptable, only he can provide. So he says to the church at Sardis, I know your works. I know your works. It's like God in the Old Testament saying to the Israelites, I know your worship, your feast days, your solemn assemblies, and my heart despises them, God says. What we often think to be acceptable worship is anything but. Why? Because it does not terminate upon the glory of God. It terminates upon the felt needs of man or it terminates upon the desires of man, or it terminates upon what entertains the goats, you see, and does not terminate upon the glory of God. We're not just to think that any kind of worship is acceptable to God. God tells us what worship is acceptable to him, right? God shows us, he instructs us in his word what worship is acceptable to him. And yet man, in vast majority of churches, you can hit one with a rock from here, believe that worship can be anything that we devise it to be. Anything that will bring the people in, anything that will entertain the people. No, brothers and sisters. God says to Sardis, I know your works. I know your works. You have a name, you have a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. It's interesting here in considering this, that unlike the other churches we've looked at so far, there's no mention of persecution. No mention of suffering here, right? It would appear, it would appear that Sardis 
isn't participating in the kind of work for the Lord Jesus Christ, that kind of work that terminates upon his glory, the glory of his name, it doesn't appear that Sardis is participating in that kind of work that will get you persecuted, right? That will cause suffering, namely the work of being a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, the work of evangelism. They may have, they may have substituted that work work which is good in the sight of God with works that they think are good or other works that they would prefer to do, but draw no antagonism from the pagans around them. It could have been fear of man that contributed to that. Cowardice may be a contributing factor. But who do you think their good reputation is with? Who do you think their good reputation, they have a reputation of being alive. Where does that reputation come from? A pagan unbeliever enters the church. They're talking about how to live a happy life, how to overcome your problems. They're appealing to seekers, striving to satisfy felt needs, staying away from anything offensive, being careful not to offend in any way. And that so-called church will have a reputation with unbelieving pagans that they are alive. They'll have a reputation with unbelievers that they're actually a church. But in the judgment of the Lord, what is the judgment of the Lord upon that church? You're dead. You're dead. They have peace within their church, but it's the peace of a cemetery. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says, if all the church are forthtelling, prophesying the word of God, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, that unbeliever is convicted by all, the secrets of his heart are exposed, and falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among them. When a church preaches the word of God, it's often that pagan unbelievers who come into the church are offended, right? Had a couple left today, offended. (laughs) But that unbeliever comes in convinced by the word of God, convicted by the word of God. The secrets of his heart are exposed. He can't say that the spirit of God is at not work among that church, right? The Lord issues his admonition in verse two then to the church at Sardis. He says, verse two, be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Lord begins with verse 2, be watchful. Be watchful. They are dead. And here, that word at the beginning of verse 2, the Lord literally commands them to wake up. Wake up. Become someone who is spiritually alert. That's what the term refers to. Open your eyes, right? Become watchful, become vigilant, zealous. What does he want them to wake up and do? He wants them to wake up and strengthen the things which are about to die, right? Look at your spiritual condition. Look at the degree, Sardis, to which you have fallen in your slumber and look to those things that are close to death themselves. Church is dead, There are those things in the church that are ready to die. And the Lord says, strengthen, wake up, wake up, strengthen those things before they die, before the ember finally burns out. Their works are not perfect. The word means completed or fulfilled. And here's the sense, I think, of what the Lord is saying there. The professing Christians in Sardis have a a reputation that they're alive, but the works that they are doing do not give evidence yet of a genuine and living faith. They need to wake up. They need to live in accord with the faith that they profess. And James warns of this very same error. Look at James 2 with me. Turn there. James chapter 2. Works are the evidence of faith. Works are the fruit of faith. Good works, works done in reliance upon the Spirit, done for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, done in faith, give evidence of the legitimacy or the veracity of a person's faith, right? Those in Sardis have a reputation for being alive. In other words, they would say themselves, we're alive, right? There may be others who would say they're alive. But what do their actions say, right? Actions speak louder than words. What do we know 
about the legitimacy or the veracity of their faith from their works. What do we know? God will judge each one according to what he says? No. God will judge each one according to what he does. What he does. God will judge according to his works. And so what do we know from their works? What do their actions say? What do we know about the legitimacy or the veracity of their faith from what they are doing? Notice verse 14, James chapter 2, verse 14. A dead faith is marked by a baseless profession. Right? Verse 14. What does it profit? My brethren, of what eternal spiritual benefit is it if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? So someone, someone claims to have faith, right? I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He can say that until the day he dies. He can say it. And what good is that profession or what good is that claim if he does not also have the works that accompany faith, right? if he doesn't have the fruits of faith, what good is that kind of so-called faith? Now, that's a rhetorical question that James asks. No good at all is the answer. No good at all. It's a claim with no evidence. It's a baseless profession. Do you see? It's just words. They're just words, words without deeds. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked, destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, then what does it profit? What good is it? Thus also, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, in particular here he's referring to good works, the works that God has prepared for us to walk in, works done in dependence upon the Spirit, done in reliance upon Jesus Christ, done in faith, if he does not have good works, that faith is dead. Means that it produces only death and will lead to death. Those works are dead. They are good for nothing, worthless, useless. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's difficult in verse 18, but I think James, likely in humility, James is speaking here in the third person and referring to himself. James believes himself to have a living, working faith, so he says to a supposed antagonist who claims to have faith himself, he says to him, show me your faith without your works. Demonstrate your faith. Right? Give evidence of your faith. To that one, he says, you can't do it. It's impossible. It's impossible to demonstrate faith apart from the works that give evidence of faith. Do you say? Do you see? You say you believe. Well, I can top that. Verse 19, you believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, wait a minute. Abraham is the quintessential example of justification by faith apart from works. He believed God, the Bible says, and it, and it his faith, was credited to him or accounted to him for righteousness. So what's James saying? We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but James is saying we're not saved by a faith that is alone. Right? Genuine faith is a faith that is judicially vindicated. You see? Faith, genuine faith, God-gifted faith, saving faith, if you will, is judicially vindicated. We see that in verse 22. Do you see that faith, was working together with his works. In other words, that faith was accompanied by his works. And by his works, that faith was made perfect. You see the same terminology from Revelation chapter 3. Your works are not perfect before God. You see? Here, the faith of Abraham was made perfect by those accompanying works. What is that made perfect? What does that mean? By the works that accompany genuine faith, or by the works that give evidence to a living faith, the genuineness or the legitimacy, the reality, the substance of Abraham's faith was proven, was vindicated, was found to be perfect, was found to be holy, righteous. 
4, verse 2. Uh, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Interesting, that terminology made perfect. The Bible also says that the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus Christ was already perfect. Jesus Christ is perfect, right? But his obedience to God the Father in everything, his full obedience was vindicated. It was judicially vindicated in his complete suffering to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And Jesus Christ never turned, never flinched from complete obedience to God in all that he was called to do, in all that he came to do. In other words, the captain of our salvation was judicially vindicated, as it were, from any accusation of sin or disobedience, judicially vindicated, made perfect through his suffering. Back to the Lord's admonition of the church at Sardis. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Look there at verse 2. We see the same terminology being used. Be watchful, Sardis. Strengthen things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. They're not complete. Your works haven't gotten to the point where they give evidence of a genuine and living faith. Do you see the connection between the two? Your works have not given evidence of a genuine faith. Wake up. Wake up. There are still some signs of life, but those signs of life are fading fast. Your works are not yet commensurate with the faith that you profess. Strengthen what remains, the things that are yet to be done. Right? That which remains is not those little tidbits left over after everything's already been done. That which remains is referring to all that work which is still yet to do. Right? That work, work which remains, strengthen yourselves to do and to complete that work. The word means to, to ground or to establish, to establish it. It refers to a, a renewed resolve, a grounded resolve, a, a renewed determination. Ground yourself, put your feet on the ground, prepare yourself, strengthen what remains, right? Prepare for diligent effort. Now that doesn't happen without conviction. Right? That doesn't happen apart from conviction that what you profess to believe that you know to be true and worth vigilance and worth steadfast effort. The one who has no genuine faith is not going to perform those works. What is required to strengthen that which remains and to prepare yourself for that work on behalf of the Lord is a fierce determination, a steadfast resolve to labor in faith for the Lord Jesus Christ. It requires conviction, a conviction that comes from the the word of the living God, right, informing our mind, our mind and what we know fueling our motives, our motives compelling our affections and driving our actions. It takes work, doesn't it? Verse three, remember therefore how you have received and heard Hold fast and repent. The Lord calls them to a renewed, reinvigorated commitment to the word of God. A renewed, reinvigorated commitment to the gospel. How are we to strengthen that which remains? We need conviction. Conviction comes from the word of God. Resolve comes from the word of God as our mind, our hearts are informed. The Lord is calling them to a renewed and reinvigorated commitment to the gospel, that body of truth he's referring to, right? He's referring to that, that content of our faith that we received, the content of our faith through apostolic preaching that we heard. And he's calling them to remember how you have received it, how you have heard it, with what heart, with what motive you received it, how you heard it how you heeded it. We are to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering firm to the end. That's Hebrews chapter 10. And why is that? Because he who promised is faithful. We need a resolved determination to obey the word of God, a resolved, grounded, established determination to walk in those doctrines to which we have been delivered, to, uh, in our commitment to the gospel, He says, hold fast. The word means guard and keep. 
Hold fast and repent. Guard and keep what you have received. Repent of ever allowing that to slip into being something commonplace to you, right? Repent of ever having allowed that to slip into being something that wasn't valuable or precious to you, that you shouldn't have guarded and shouldn't have kept it, do you see? Can't we, don't we often, slip into patterns of considering these things common? Or we go about our lives professing to be Christians, and yet these things can become mundane to us? It is a testimony of the fallenness of our wicked hearts that such a thing could be the case, right? It's to our shame that that could be the case. We start taking things for granted that are eternal and God-glorifying precious truths. These things that are pearls of great price, right? Treasures hidden in the field, and we treat them as common rocks sometimes. Those things which are valuable, that we should be guarding and keeping in our hearts as precious to us, and you wake up one morning and they're just no longer precious, right? He says, guard and keep what you have received. He's calling them to a reinvigorated commitment to the gospel. Guard and keep what you've heard. Recommit yourself to it. Strengthen what remains. He is our life, amen? Guard and keep. The Lord then moves from admonition at the end of verse three. And he moves on, therefore, if you will not watch, he moves to warning, right? Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, once again, as we've seen in previous addresses to the churches, the Lord uses eschatological or end times language here. He will come as a thief. The reason... Speaking to a church in the first century, the reason, speaking to us in our century, okay, the reason that the Lord uses eschatological language in addressing the church today or addressing the church in the first century is to press the urgency of that day upon the church in our day, right? It's to press the, the life and death of urgency of that day. It's to take that day and to press it upon the church in our day or to press it upon the church in the first century, okay? To press the judgment of the last day, the life and death sober reality of God's judgment that will be meted out in that day to press that judgment upon us in our day, to call us to vigilance, to call us to watchfulness. We must hold fast. We can't let that glorious truth slip through our fingers. We can't let what is precious be given away or frittered away, tossed into the air. We have to hold fast. We have to keep it. Why? Because that day is coming. Do you see? Be watchful. Strengthen what remains. Be vigilant. Hold fast. Repent. Why? Because he's coming back. Because he's coming back. The Lord reminds us with language like this that we are heading in a very specific direction and we are headed to a specific location. We're heading in the direction of judgment. We're heading in the direction of that day and that day will determine our destiny. Do you see? We are to live our lives in the shadow of that day. It would help us to understand the language that the Lord is using here. Okay, the Lord's return at the end of the age is mentioned many times in the New Testament. And for those who do not expect his return, his return is compared to that of a thief coming in the night. Listen to Luke chapter 12. Listen, verse 35. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching in that way. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. 
And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. Matthew Henry says that the Lord blesses not only his working servants, the Lord blesses his waiting servants. We're to wait patiently for the Lord. We're to have an expectation of his return. And that waiting is an active effort, isn't it? Those who live are to live in expectation of his return. And we we are kept with that sense of uncertainty. We don't know the day or the hour of his return. We're kept with that sense of uncertainty so that we'll always be at the ready. So that we'll always be. If we know it's going to be 10 years from now, then what are we going to do now? What's the bent of our fallen flesh? What are we going to do? We're going to be lazy, sluggardly, disregard, unwatchful, right? We're kept at the ready by that uncertainty, that sense of uncertainty. Listen to verse 39. But listen, know this, know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Now, in contrast, this is the miserable case of those who are not watchful. They are unbelieving. They've not taken the Lord at his word. And he loses all when the thief comes in the night at an hour which he does not expect. Therefore, verse 40, therefore you also be ready. That's the point. Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The thief in the night, when you see that mention in Scripture, that language, thief in the night language, is a picture of the Lord coming in judgment. The, those upon whom he comes as a thief in the night, he comes upon them in judgment. He comes upon them in judgment. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Turn with me there. Matthew chapter 24. And look there at verse 36, Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. It's to cultivate within us a sense of readiness to cause us or to prompt us, provoke us to watch, to be watchful, to be vigilant. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. What he's speaking about is coming in judgment, do you see? Compares these days that are coming to the days of the flood. Verse 38, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The day of judgment comes when Jesus Christ returns, right? There is the day, a day, a singular day. That day comes when Jesus Christ comes. Then, verse 40, in that day, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. What are we speaking about? We're speaking about judgment, right? Um, Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, verse 42, watch, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. That's the point. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. We're not to allow that day to overtake us as a thief. Why? We're to be watchful. We're to be ready. We're to be ready for the soon return of the Lord at any time. That means spiritually ready, ready as a church, busy about his work, vigilant, strengthening those things which remain, holding fast, repenting, doing good works that are commensurate with our profession, right? Laboring for the Lord until he comes ready. So when the master of the house comes, he finds his servants so doing, right? Revelation, turn there with me. Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. That day is not to overtake us as those who are unready. (laughs) It shouldn't overtake us like a thief coming in the night. Revelation chapter 16. Drop down to verse 15. 
Behold, he says, the Lord says, verse 15, I am coming as a thief. That's that language again, right? Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, we're going to talk about what that means um, relatively soon. I was going to say soon. I I can't say soon. Uh, It's Revelation chapter 16. We're going to talk about that when we get to Revelation chapter 16. But there is a blessing associated with the one who watches and keeps his garments, so to speak. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. I want you to listen. Listen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. We know that's how the Lord has said he will come. We know that, right? Verse 3. For when they say, peace and safety, peace, peace, no, no reason to be alarmed, right? Then sudden destruction comes upon them. As a labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they shall not escape. But you, brethren, notice the contrast, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You notice the contrast between the two, right? Those who are overtaken as a thief are those who are not watching, those who are not ready, those who are asleep. But brothers and sisters, that's not us. We are to be watchful. We're to be vigilant. We're to live as those who are expecting the soon return of the Lord. We're not in darkness so that this day should overtake us as a thief. Verse 5, you are all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. But let us watch and be sober for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of love. How are we to wait the Lord's return? How are we to be faithful waiters? We are to put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of our salvation. For God did not appoint us to the wrath of hell, the wrath of judgment, But God appointed us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ and he who died for us that whether we wake or whether we sleep, we should live together with him. Gives us good instruction, doesn't it? Let's think together. Back in Revelation chapter three. Let's think together now. Think with me. This language, thief in the night, used to warn of impending judgment upon the church in the first century if they fail to watch. Verse 3, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You won't be ready because you're not watching. He warns the church of a judgment that he will bring upon them in the present. To that church in that day, And he uses language that points them forward to the eschatological day of judgment, right? The Lord is connecting the two. You're going to receive upon you, the church, in your day, you're going to receive upon you a judgment that is simply a precursor. It's a foretaste, if you will, of that final day of judgment. And I'm going to pour that out on you. And I'm going to use the same language to show you that those are connected. You see? If they fail to watch, if they fail to strengthen their resolve, this judgment will come upon them as a thief. This judgment will typify, it will serve as a precursor to that judgment that will come at the end. That judgment where a good shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and the Lord here, in essence, dividing sheep from goats, makes a gracious distinction in Sardis. And he moves now from admonition to warning to encouragement. In verse 4, you have a few names even in Sardis. Notice that language, right? That's such a, such a scathing rebuke, isn't it? You have a few, the word few, you have a few names even in Sardis, right? The church is dead. But even in that dead church, you have a few names, right, that have not defiled their garments. There are a few in Sardis who are living a life in keeping with their profession. There are a few there. They have put on Christ, so to speak, So they have not defiled or profaned their good confession. They've not defiled their garments. 
The Lord says, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Worthy only because they've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Worthy only because they've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ apart from works of the law. And worthy because God, by his spirit, works through faith to produce the works that justify. It's a life. They've been living a life. They've been walking, right? They walk with me in white, for they are worthy. To walk worthy is to live a life that adorns the gospel. It's to live a life that is in keeping with your profession. It's to live a life that is pleasing to Jesus Christ in accord with what we say that we believe. If you live a life that is not in accord with what you say that you believe, what does that make you? It makes you a hypocrite. Right? They walk worthy because they, they live, they have lived their lives in a way that adorns the gospel. It is a, a life that is lived in accord with their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A life of spirit-wrought works that give evidence of a genuine faith, a living faith. Their white garments signify their purity. Revelation chapter 7 Verse 13, have a, having seen a vision of the gathered saints in glory. In verse 13, John says that one of the elders then answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? John sees the church, right? He's given a vision of the church, and one of the elders asks John a question then. Who are these? They're arrayed in white robes. They're waving palm branches. Who are these? Where do they come from? He said to him, verse 14, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Look at Revelation chapter three, verse five then. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Those white garments washed white in the scarlet blood of the slain Son of God. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. We know that those names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And so in this, in one verse, we see the outworking of God's decree. Well, don't we? He wrote their name, names in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. And here he promises not to blot their names out from the book of life, but to confess, to confess his name before my father, before his angels. We see the outworking of God's decree. It's all connected, right? They, are give, they were given, they were given a living faith. Their living faith given as a gift of God produced works in accord with their profession. They produced the fruits of faith. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's how we overcome. We overcome through faith in Jesus Christ. They were clothed with white garments because those garments had been washed, as it were, in the blood of the lamb. Their names confessed before the father, before his angels, by the one who always lives to make intercession for us. And it all puts together the decree of God, our salvation, the eventual glory of God, and the salvation of his own. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, those whom he foreknew before the foundation of the world, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called in time. Whom he called in time, these he also justified in time. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Right? You see the outworking of God's decree. So what is the church at Sardis doing here? The church at Sardis is, is taking God's name in vain. They're violating the third commandment. They have failed to be a witness to his name. They're not living zealously for his name. They are Christians, you could say, in name only. The church is dead, virtually apostate, and the Lord is calling them to repentance, strengthen those things which remain. He who has an ear, verse 6, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
church, uh, the Lord is calling the church at Sardis to wake up, to wake up, strengthen what remains before it finally dies. Be vigilant. Reinvigorate your commitment to the gospel. Reinforce, renew your commitment to the word of God. Allow the spirit of God through the word of God to strengthen your resolve, to to inform your mind, to strengthen your convictions, to fuel affections in your heart for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's calling them to wake up because they're about to die. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, this church is not about to die. By God's grace, this is a living, breathing, vital, healthy, loving, hoping, joyful, precious church, entirely by the grace of God, right? Don't let it slip one step from that good profession. Not one step. Don't let it slip. Don't count these things that we've been blessed with to be common things. Don't take advantage of them. Don't take them for granted. Don't think of them as being common. And listen, if you think of them as common, you're despising them. You're showing contempt for them. Treat them as precious. Hold fast. Guard what we have. Keep what we have. Repent of ever, ever allowing any of this to somehow seem common in our sight. Right? lest we end up like Sardis. Right? Sardis uh, didn't end up there overnight. That road to apostasy is often a long road, many steps that are taken before apostasy is fully entrenched, before the church fully dies. Brothers and sisters, we have something precious here. The Lord has seen to it. Uh, we have him to thank and let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ as we hold fast what we have until he comes. And not only holding fast what we have, brothers and sisters, we need to join together in prayer, praying that God in his mercy and in his grace to us would cause us to abound in these blessings that he has afforded us. That we wouldn't take the grace of God or receive the grace of God in vain, but that we would abound in it to the glory of our Lord and Savior and for our own eternal good, right? We would abound in these graces. Let us remain awake. Let us remain awake. Let us be watchful. Let us be ready. Let us be vigilant. Let us be about the work that the church at Sardis was to be about. The church in Chuliota, the church in Orlando, our church is to be about. Let us be vigilant and let us walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. It's a high calling, amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you've called us, called us out of this world, called us to yourself, have washed us in the blood of the lamb, have cleansed us, have forgiven us of all our sin, have, Lord, separated us to yourself. I pray, Lord, that you would protect us from any friendship with this world. You would protect us from any compromise with this world but you would strengthen us by your spirit to hold fast what we have, to keep that which we have until you return. And not only to keep it, to hold it, Lord, but to bear fruit in it for your glory, to abound in the grace that you've poured out on us, Lord, for your name's sake, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would bear fruit in keeping with our profession, that it might adorn the gospel to the glory of your name. And we pray these things in the name of our blessed God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.